Welcome to another edition of The Learning Journey. Today we are recording at IMC in Cairns, but we are heading to Timor-Leste because Nick Hitchens joins us. Hey Nick, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Wayne. Now you're Country Director in Timor-Leste. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, but your wife was a guest on The Learning Journey podcast earlier this year sometime. That's right. What did she tell you about the experience of sitting down and having a chat with me? Well, she loved it and then she did such a great job. You know, I feel a bit nervous sitting here right now because I'm sort of walking in her shadow. So she's probably told you all the good stories. <laughs> well, I'll give you, you know, what is it? The rebuttal or, you know, the yeah, right to respond, all that sort of stuff. Very good. Country director. Mm. Inside mass, we hear about it a lot, sometimes called program director. What does it actually mean for someone that may not be familiar with the details of that title? Oh, my goodness. It sounds like one of those very highbrow sort of jobs. <laughs> yeah, it? It does. Director of a country. No. Yes. Um it means that I do everything that needs doing when there's no one else to do it. Right. We're very much there to oversee the team, to keep a good interface between what's happening at the coalface of a MAFI program, yep. to sort of faithfully make sure that we're discharging the remit of MAF. Because all of us work in very remote locations, right? And it's very tempting for us to think we're the only ones, you know? And, and I sort of have to remind myself a lot of the time, yes, I am on an island in the middle of nowhere, but the reality is that we're part of this wonderful organization that's broadly spread across the globe and has a common uh, vision and mission. And yeah. so it's, it's my role to make sure that we are doing that well. But we're doing that with a local flavor. We're doing that in a way that feels Timorese. There is so much to unpack just in the first answer. Nick, right. I'm going to enjoy our chat today. I just know <laughs> it. Before we get to any of that, I want to rewind because as I understand it, your background is actually in broadcasting. I started off with a commerce degree, actually. Okay. And I did people's taxes for a while. And I think one day I woke up and went, I'm going to go mad if I have to do this anymore. So I went to drama school in the UK yep. and that led me into broadcasting and then some time as a film and television director and then subsequently actually running a small IT company, which came out of that because it was tasked with uh, the role of digitally distributing media. So I had quite a, a wide variety of mixed professions yes. in my background. Yes. And uh, for the longest time, I kept asking the Lord, how does this all fit together? Yes, because like, I'm wondering where aviation like, fits in you know, there. Oh, I love flying as well. I actually started my pilot's license when I was 19. Right. And I did want to be a commercial pilot, but uh, for reasons of eyesight back then, I couldn't. The reality of it all was that when I ended up with this job, and we can talk about how I ended up as the country director in a minute, because it's kind of interesting as well. But yes. when I ended up in this job, I suddenly realized what God's been doing for the last 30 years and how all of these things were woven together in this really unique role, which actually means that I wear kind of all those hats simultaneously. Yeah. I love it. You're doing my job for me. You're already, you know, forward planning in terms of the next yes, question. So, so let's go there then, Nick. How did you get to be country director from accounting and doing people's taxes to being in Timor-Leste and islands kind of off the north of Australia, flying planes? I was going to say the managing the country, but that's probably not correct. Managing the program <laughs> that's in the country. How did that happen? Well, my lovely wife and I were sitting talking uh, back in 2019 and I was in a particularly stressful time at work. And she said to me, okay, look, if you could do anything in the world, what would that be? And I said, well, I, I would fly airplanes and I would love to fly airplanes for Matt. She said, well, why don't you do it? I said, it's completely impossible. You know, I'm so enmeshed in my current role. Anyway, she said, well, I think you should give it a go. So she encouraged me to, to give that a go. And when we got back uh, from our holiday, I duly sent off an email to Math New Zealand. And they told me how hard it is to get into math and they did their absolute best to dissuade me. But we say it, it's a bit like, you know, getting on a train. Hmm. Once you get on the train, it's just going. 
right? You yeah. really don't have much control over where you end up. You just get on and then eventually you end up there. Uh, and before we knew it, in early 2020, so literally like less than four months after we had first contacted Math New Zealand, which is unheard of in the math world, we found ourselves in Mariba. And I was starting uh, some continuing training as, as a math pilot. And my intention absolutely was just to go and fly airplanes for MAF. Had no other aspirations. Yep. That, of course, happened right in the midst of COVID, mm -hmm. when pilots were being laid off left, right and centre, and the world's getting shut down, and all these crazy things are happening. But through a process which I will say was challenging, yes. we ended up being asked if we would consider going to Timor-Leste as a pilot. And so, yes, I ended up there in April of 2021. By September of 2021, the existing country director had decided that for personal family reasons, they were actually going to have to leave. And so a vacancy became available. There was another chap there at the time who actually took over the role of acting country director, and he was busily doing that when he and his wife quite unexpectedly and unfortunately were involved in a road traffic accident. Wow. I kind of had a baptism by fire because I was kind of the next guy down at the time, and it became my role to get them medevaced out of Timor-Leste back to their home country. And I can remember Norm Baker saying to me, well, basically, that was your interview, you know. <laughs> so I did actually officially apply. Yeah. And then, you know, just a few short months later, ended up taking over. So it was, it was not by intention, but it certainly seems to be by the Lord's design. And I feel like we've absolutely ended up where we should be. Tell me what, through that journey, so you're now country director mm. in Timor-Leste. Tell me what you learned about Nick Hitchens through all of that. Oh, wow. What did I learn about Nick Hitchens? I learned that Nick Hitchens likes to be in control of things. Okay. And I think when you're working in those kind of environments, you have to learn the hard way that you just are not. You know, in the end, it's about what is God doing here? And God is in charge of the timing. And we might put great pressure on ourselves to achieve all kinds of things. And we have achieved some fantastic things. But they've happened in what we call Timor time. Mm. And Timor time is not the same as Australian standard time. It works very differently. And it's involved me having to just say, it's okay. I'm just going to do what God puts across my path today. Uh, I'll do that faithfully. Yeah. And uh, I won't worry about tomorrow. And I won't carry around that burden of pressure to try and deliver something. Because those environments are just so challenging. Timor time, I probably know it as island time, having spent a few years in the South Pacific. It's hard coming from New Zealand, Australia, or a Western country where a lot of things run to a schedule. Yep. How did you adjust to Timor time? Well, yeah. I mean, you're kind of thrown in at the deep you end, I to, guess. You have absolutely no choice. You know, a classic example of this is we, we like to plan our diaries and we like to have our calendars all neatly set out. And, and indeed, in Western organisations, that's what we're expected to do. But in Timorese society, you'll receive an invitation that comes on Tuesday afternoon for an all-day meeting tomorrow with the minister of so-and-so. People will just turn up and say, with an expectation that you're going to drop everything and see them. You learn that there is a different way of conducting yourself, and it just doesn't fit any of the patterns that we used to. Yeah. Have you learned a lot about culture living in Timor-Leste? Mm. I mean, that's one element of it, but I'm wondering, you know, other parts of the culture. I absolutely have. I think the thing that I have learned the most is that our tendency is that we come into those kind of environments and we think that our way is best. Yes. And we tend to look on less developed cultures as being inferior to our own. I've been very challenged by that and my mindset has had to be changed and sometimes kicking and screaming a little bit, but to actually be able to stop and say, you know, there are many things that these guys do better than we do. Things that we've lost 
along the way. And so much that I can learn. Three years on, I say I've learned far more and received far more than ever I had been able to give. Yeah. I'm now starting to ask a lot of difficult questions about why we do what we do and how are we involving the local people in the decision-making process about how we help them. Because, you know, we have this wonderful mission statement that we're working together to bring help, hope and healing through aviation. But one of the things that, you know, we've been thinking about this week at IMC and I've been thinking about probably for the last year is, well, I have my ideas about what help looks like, but they might not look like what you think help looks like. And as MAF in those environments, it can be quite challenging sometimes because we need to have quite a lot of courage to actually sit down with our partners and say, well, what does help look like for you? Hmm. And then when that answer comes back and it's quite different to what I'm expecting to have the courage to do something about that so that we can grow together. Yeah. It's not about me coming to give you something or teach you something or help develop you. It's about us growing together and experiencing life together and maturing. And, and actually, at the end of the day, you don't end up with the Australian way and the Timorese way. You end up with kind of a new way where we've learnt and we've experienced life and we've matured. Are you able to give us a practical example of what that looks like on the ground? Well, I just told a story to everyone here at IMC about a girl that we helped. Anna cut her foot running around in the garden and her family took her to the local traditional healer and walked through that process of local traditional medicine for a period of about three or four months. And when we came across Anna, she had fully developed gangrene in her mm. foot from a cut. That then resulted in a below-the-knee amputation. And Ruth talked to you a little bit about our Closing the Loop project. Yes. So Ruth worked with her and her family to try and help them connect with the right kind of services. So I guess we had in our minds that she would leave the hospital with some sort of walking assistance crutches or maybe a prosthetic limb or whatever. And that's what we thought help looked like. Her family decided something different. They actually wanted to go home. They didn't want to engage in that process. They weren't interested in pursuing that for whatever reason, some of which I don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. But for them, help looked like just us being there with them, just visiting them, just walking through it with them not necessarily resolving itself in, into the kind of outcome that all of us would think was, well, self-evidently better, right? Yes. So it just kind of highlights the fact that what I think is good may or may not match what someone in another culture thinks is good. So we have to do a lot more listening than we do actual talking. I love that because I think there's listening and then there's active listening. How are you deliberate about making sure that you're hearing what the people are saying? Well, some of it's trial and error and making lots of mistakes, to be honest. You have to be deliberate about asking the questions. My staff are great. Now we have far more Timorese staff than we have international staff. So, you know, one of the roles of country director is to realize, well, I'm actually not the subject matter expert on Timor. They are. And I may be in charge of helping to guide the ship, but I would be a foolish captain if I didn't listen to my crew. And so to take on board the stories that they tell us, to develop enough trust with them that they feel safe enough, you know, in, in a hierarchical culture like that, for our team members to come to us and say, actually, we don't think you're doing this right. That's almost unheard of. You just don't say that to the boss. Hmm. So we're transforming culture at the same time as we're trying to respect and work with existing culture. So in, at the culture within my team, I've had to take them on a journey that says, well, actually, it's not healthy for you just to treat me as what well, they call me chief. You can call me that, but let our relationship 
be more mutual where you actually have the right to come and talk to me about something and and to offer me advice because I want to hear that I want to learn and it's taken time to develop that level of trust but because we have we can now understand work more closely be far more effective ask more of those right questions and just be on that pathway of continual learning I wonder somebody who might not be a country director but they're in a position where they're actually leading somebody so they could be a manager leading a team could be an individual, you know, leading another individual. I wonder from your years of experience and, and maybe from the last three years in Timor Leste, are there kind of like two or three things that you can highlight as being essential in addition, you know, to the, the listening that we've just spoken about? I was talking about this with one of the MAFI communication instructors, and we were talking about the concept of intellectual humility. We need to be able to have robust conversations mm. with each other. We need to be able to disagree healthily with one another, but we need to do it in a way which is always prepared to learn. And I think that's one of the absolute major skills of a good leader is that they approach their job, their life, their leadership experience with a heart of humility and a readiness to always be learning. Yeah. And I think the concept that you know we espouse in Christian circles of, of servant leadership, you know, I'm not there to advance my own agenda, I'm actually there to look at you, to see you, and to help you become the best version of yourself that you can be. And it's really interesting when you talk to my team, this really shocked me when I started doing performance appraisals with them, I'd say, what's the best thing about working for MAF? And they gave me two answers. They said, the best thing about working for MAF is devotions every morning, because we never get the chance to talk about this stuff. We go to our churches and we just get told things from the front. We don't actually interact with the Bible for ourselves. So that was a good learning point for me. The second thing they said that they loved about working for MAF is that I asked them what they did on the weekend. And again, you think, what an innocuous thing, right? But it meant so much to them that I could see them as people, not just as resources, and that I was really interested in what made them tick. If you can journey with a heart of humility and be ready to learn, and you can take an interest in the people around you, then you, you become a good leader. And maybe the third one is to be able to always hold on to the reason for being there, right? Because you are in a ship and you're going somewhere. And if you're spinning the wheel left and right all the time, then you end up kind of going around in circles or going nowhere. So to be able to listen to the team, involve them in the decision-making processes as well, but to, to collectively clearly hold tight to the vision of where you're going. Can you talk to us, Nick, about rest? Because mm. I talked to many people within MAF mm and their schedules are full to overflowing, there's not enough hours in the day nor hours in the week yep. to get everything done. And the pastoral part of me is concerned about them taking care of themselves and finding the time and being deliberate about having the time for rest. Mm. So what does it look like for you? How do you switch off when you are leading a team, you're a dad, you're a husband, there's responsibilities, there's expectations, there's all of that. Where does rest fit in? How do you make it work? When you have worked the answer to that out, could you please <laughs> let me know? Because I do struggle with that. Um, this job is an unrelenting job. Yeah. There's always something going on. There's people calling you at every hour of the night. I think it has to be safeguarded in small increments. For me, it's a kind of a psychological thing. When I come home, I close the gate and I put the padlock in and I click it shut. And it's just my way of actually saying I'm just closing myself into my family space. And yes, I still have the boys and Ruth and, you know, that comes with its own challenges, 
raising a family, but we've created an environment where we can just say, just for the next few hours, the responsibilities of doing all of this is just shut out. Yeah. I think it's something that the organization needs to be very aware of. I mean, it's great that you asked me that question that shows a level of awareness that it is something that we need to guard because I definitely have less energy sitting here now than I did at this time last year. Yes. And that can't go on forever. That's no, uh, not sustainable, not is sustainable. it? For you, for the family, even for the organization. No. You touched on family there, on Ruth um, and your boys. Have you learned something about family, the importance of family from the people in Timor Leste? There's some great things that we can learn. I love the way the Timorese people consider those amongst them that are more mature. There is no social security safety net when someone is sick or someone is old. The family step in. It's not even questioned. It's not like we have those discussions. Oh, I'm going to have to have mum and dad come and live with us for a while while I find them a place in a rest type. Like, we're like you know, it's just expected. Yeah. For the rest of their life, most Timorese people are sending money home if they're working overseas or if they're lucky enough to have a job, which most don't, let's face it. They're funding the wider family. So it's, it's the idea of the collectivist society, which is very, very different from our very individualistic view. You know, I love the fact that I could, in theory, send one of my sons out to go and get a great job and then he supports me into later life. I'm just hoping that's rubbed <laughs> off, right? That we might be the beneficiary of some of that. Yeah, we're best happy having those conversations yeah, now, right, I'd, exactly. I'd suggest. Yeah. Dreams are free, right? Yeah, that's yeah. it. They are. I'm not sure it's happening in my household <laughs> either, but that's okay. Hey, Timor-Leste is not an easy place to get to. No. It's, it's oh. quite a challenge to get there. And when you're on the ground, you know, it can be a challenge as we've touched on today. What keeps you going? What keeps you moving forward? What stops you from putting your hands up in those moments where anyone who's worked culturally goes, oh, I've had enough, that's it, I'm done. We know we are where we're meant to be. Mm. That's a deep knowing for both Ruth and I, less so for our boys because they have their own dreams and they have their own futures. Right now it's walking alongside us, but we encourage them to say, you're not stuck here forever. And sometimes they feel that. But Ruth and I know we are where we're meant to be and we know we're doing what we're meant to do. And that actually gives you a tremendous peaceful settling in what is a tumultuous environment. So I think that's really, really important. It's a love of the people. It's an excitement about seeing what God's doing. It's a celebration of the small little victories that you see along the way. And learning to see those has been another gift of that. You know, we're always talking about big things in terms of our strategic plans, but it's not really the big things that actually keep you going. Mm -hmm. It's seeing those small little things, the little personal interactions, the one-on-one -on -one experiences. Ruth has them more than I do, actually, when she's visiting people in the hospital. You know, people who just stop and look at you and say, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to love me. That's what energizes you because you're participating in the work of the Lord. Hmm. That's what excites us. Yeah. It's a great reminder of the relational nature of God, hmm. that it is actually about the one. It's not about the multitudes. It's about the one. So that's a really good reminder. Yeah. Well, sadly, Nick. 20 minutes, it goes very, very quickly. I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface, but we've talked about planes, we've talked about ships, we've talked about trains, almost felt like this was a transportation podcast, but it's not, it's the learning journey. And I'm so very thankful that we were able to find some time and have a chat. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Wayne, very much.
A big thank you to Nick Hitchens, our guest on the podcast today. It was great to hear Nick's journey to Timor-Leste and what he's learned from leading a team in one of the world's newest countries. Now, next time on The Learning Journey, we head to Uganda and we're going to chat with Mark Draper, an engineer whose grandfather planted the MAF seed into his life when he was just a teenager. It's a fascinating story. Don't forget as well that if you want to learn something new today, our online learning platform Elevate is a great place to start. There's hundreds of courses in the content library that will help you to reach your full potential. See you next time for more of The Learning Journey.